Welcome to Funds That Won, where we dive into some of the world's most renowned investment funds. We'll interview investment managers across the alternative landscape and learn how they built their million and even billion dollar asset management empires. We'll explore teams, structures, strategies, and best practices in launching and running alternative investment funds. All right, today we've yeah. got Krista with Stage Capital with us. Krista, welcome on. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you. So why don't you start off by giving me the elevator pitch on stage? Of course. So we are an early stage private equity firm, and we make full control acquisitions of tech companies that have lost their, let's say they're moving off the venture path. Okay. Straight, simple, straightforward. I love it. Uh, <laughs> tell me about your guys' inception. How long have you guys been around? So Stage was actually founded by my partner, Dan, back in 2009. So he's been developing this strategy for a long time. He um, worked at some of the big turnaround funds and he started it more as like a, call it a deal by deal investment strategy. And then I joined him in 2020 uh, and we decided to launch a fund. So our, call it Stage in its modern inception is about four years old, but a lot of a playbook and like thesis um, development over the last 10 years. Gotcha. And so, you know, at inception, was it ran through a fund or was it all kind of just a combination of SPVs or? Yeah, exactly. It was more deal by deal. So we, we launched our first fund in 2020 and we're now on fund two. Oh, excellent. What was, what was the size of, of your raise on fund one? Fund one was under 10 million and fund two is just over 20 million. Great. And are you, have you completely deployed all of fund one yet? Fund one is fully deployed. It was actually deployed pretty much when we closed it. We started warehousing investments initially. So um, it, it closed and was largely deployed, which is why fund two happened so quickly. And so then we raised fund two and we are almost done deploying. We're in the process of making our final acquisition for fund two and thinking about fund three. So. Excellent. Um, and do you still have, so like aggregate assets under management of your firm, like what, what are we talking yeah, it's about? It's about 30. So it's about 30 million 30. Okay. under management. Yeah. Great. Um, well, awesome. And do you still do SPVs, sidecars, or is it just funds now? Just funds. We're thinking about, depending on how, truthfully, depending on how tough the fundraising environment is, I guess we might consider Smith SPVs, but we like the fund structure. Like our, our preference is to continue on that route if we can. Great. Well, let's, uh, let's double click into, into this thesis here. So you identify established profitable tech companies, no. non-profitable when they're distressed. Distressed. Yeah. All right. <laughs> um, and you are coming in and you are buying out majority positions and turning mm -hmm. them over. Basically. Yeah. Talk to, me, so, talk to me about how you guys do that. Yeah. So we're, so at the stage of companies, so these are early stage tech companies. So we're talking post series A, they've usually had, they've usually had venture investment. So we're, we're buying, uh, we're buying them after they've put usually 20, $30 million into R&D. They've gotten a product to market. They've got three to $5 million of revenue. So they have some indi good indications of product market fit, but they're not getting the growth that the VCs wanna see. 
And so, you know, the VC strategy, it necessitates like a winnowing down of the portfolio to focus on your winners. And, and our thesis is that the ones that they walk away from, I mean, some of them maybe, you know, really just are never going to get anywhere, but a lot of those tech companies have value. They have a solid product, they have good customers, but they need to be restructured and managed differently for a more moderate growth path. And, you know, our, it's a, it's a, not a traditional private equity strategy in that we have to invest in growth as well. Like we still have some early stage tech company risk. Um, and so, you know, there's a, we're always balancing profitability and, and growth. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, so what's, I mean, what's your typical ticket size that you're, you're looking to write? Small. So in the second, so in the second fund, first fund, we, it was really small. It was like one, basically one to 2 million in the second fund, we're deploying three to 5 million. And I would say in fund three, as we develop the strategy, we're probably going to push that, you know, call it four to 7 million per investment, but it's the strategy. It's one of the challenges of the strategy is that it, you know, it, it actually works. The economics of it work really well when you're not deploying 20, 30 million dollars at a time. Mm-hmm. You know, the core thesis is you buy it at, you know, you buy a company maybe one to one and a half times revenue from an enterprise value standpoint, and then you get it restructured. You all we take 75% ownership and we put a liquidation preference on the capital, and then we aim to grow it and sell it. But ideally, we want to manage the risk. You want to know, like when I structure a deal, I look and say, can we get a three, four X return if we sell this for $25 million? Like, so if you're putting in $30 million of capital, you'd have to hold it for a lot longer to get any kind of return. Yeah. Are you typically turning over management when you're coming in or uh, what is, what does that look like? That's. That's an interesting question. We, I think when we started, we thought that would happen more often. I would say four years in looking at the portfolio, our best performing companies are the ones where the founders stayed and we could keep them engaged and, you know, give them, call it like a a new second chance. Like the ones that are still excited about what they're doing, it it works, it works well. Yeah. But Okay, so if you're a tech founder and you come out, you get a $20 million valuation from a VC, you're up and yeah. to the right, everything's exciting, yeah. right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden you don't hit your KPIs. Like how does the founder and both the VC who own stake in this justify a write down, you know, down to what, four, eight million bucks, like a fraction of their previous valuation? Because that's essentially what you're doing, right? Yes, I w- I'm a very good negotiator. Is that a good answer? <laughs> <laughs> I, no, um, look, I, I guess the first thing I would say is we're not in the valuation game. So typically these are, we're doing control asset purchases. So what we're saying is your old company was your old company. Your old valuation was your old valuation. We are willing to buy these assets for X amount of dollars put them into a new company and get it funded again. And then we work with the VC, usually so VCs, but a lot of our deal flow comes from venture debt providers. 
officer, um, comes from venture debt providers where the, so the debt provider and the old equity and the founder are all figuring out what does each of them need to agree to a new deal. But yeah, look, the, the VCs, I mean, in the end, their whole, VCs don't build portfolios where everyone's going to be a winner. So they have to walk away from money. It's like the nature of, of VC and it doesn't make those companies bad. It just like means they need to do something else with it. So the VCs are the ones that are usually the most willing to walk away. Well, yeah, I mean, it makes sense because their whole model is, hey, look, a third, if not half of this portfolio is going to fail. And we just want to focus on the ones that that 10x and at least we'll get yeah. something back on our investment, right? So I can yeah. imagine that side of the negotiation is a lot more amicable than maybe the conversation that you have to have with the founder, right? I would agree. You know, for the founder, a lot of it for them is, you know, they're, you know, like they don't want to disappoint all the people they took money from. And I would say, I guess we haven't talked about, you know, my background, but I was a tech founder who went through, had to go through a soft landing. So when I sit in front of these founders, like I have been there, I know all the feelings that they are feeling and it's really hard. But what I try to tell them is, you know, this happens all the time, right? 2% of seed funded companies make it up to IPO, 2%. So there's a whole giant you know, ecosystem of companies that are not going to get there. And so the fact that you didn't make it, you know, yeah, plan A didn't work. Why not have a plan B and, and at least give yourself a chance at those founders have put in all the sweat equity, right? They are trying to yeah. just do right by everyone as, as much as they can, but those VCs are, are also walking away and they're not going to keep funding. Yeah. So are these mostly you know, first time founders? It, no, it actually really depends. So I would say there's not a, I wouldn't now we haven't done a million deals, but I would not say a correlation because you get second time founders. If anything, the one, the founders that have been there before, are a little less emotional, right? They're yeah, like, this happens. I, well, I'm thinking yeah. like a second time founder is typically like they understand the process a little more and they're more willing to maybe step away or uh, wouldn't, I, I feel like they wouldn't be as okay with that process. They'd almost want to just say, okay, like next business type thing, you know, but um, I feel like first time, fun, you know, founders are a lot more emotionally connected to what they're building and, uh, I don't know. It's I'd, I'd be curious to you know check back in ten years and see if there's any correlation. There. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure there is. One of the one of our founders that is doing really well, like their company's doing great, and you know he he is he has said to me like I just want to show. I basically he just wants he's like I just want to prove all those VCs wrong. I want to prove yeah. that they shouldn't have walked away and and that this was really a good business. And so everyone's got their reason, you know making a decision to you know take a deal that's not your ideal and like start over you know one you have to want to do it and some founders just don't some of them are like just i want to be done with this um but the ones that do all have their own whether it's ego whether it's financial whether it's you know whatever they all everyone's got a different reason for it yeah well, Crystal, let's back up. Tell me about how you got here into this game. You've already alluded you you were in yeah. the founder's seat. I'd love to hear your story. 
hey, just wanted to throw this in here. Um, every spring we throw this awesome event called Fund Launch Live. We would love to see you there. We basically, myself will be there, my partners, uh, our team. We bring in a bunch of our coaches and other fund managers. And we honestly just talk funds for several days. It's a really fun educational uh, conference. Uh, we would love to see you there. If you're interested in attending, you can grab tickets at www.fundlaunchlive.com. Thanks. Now back to the show. So I'm from Montreal. I'm Canadian, which is how now I live in Vancouver because Montreal is too cold. Uh, I started a fintech company when I, I was working in advertising. I came up with this idea for crowdfunding and invoice financing. And I thought that sounded like a great idea. So I built a FinTech platform and yes. scaled it. So All we right, got it up. This? this was in, um, oh gosh, 2012 was when I started it. 2012 and in 2019, you know, we had gotten the company up to over 10 million of revenue. We had put out over a billion dollars of, of loans on the platform. It was all going great. And then we ended up with a very significant fraud in the portfolio that kind of overnight, I went from everything's great to everything is not great. And we had to very, especially being a finance company, we had to very quickly like, you know, protect the current assets in the portfolio, get it soft landed. We had whole platform of crowdfunded investors. So like my, I had to really understand like how, how do you wind something down and soft land it in a short period of time with a ton of stakeholders, <laughs> bring everyone together. And it just so happened that I had met now my partner, Dan, along the way. And it worked out very well that he coached me through the process. And we worked really closely together. And I've decided if you, you know, can work with someone through what I would tell you is the hardest time of my life, pretty much, and still like them at the end of it, uh, it's a good sign. And he, he said to me, look, you know, you like it or not have a real gift for turnarounds. And we talked about his strategy. We talked about him wanting to have scaled it. And, you know, Dan is an amazing operator. He really like it's a real gift for getting in there and figuring out what's wrong. And, but he's not call it the fund manager, right? I've been running a finance company. I understood portfolio management and investor LP management, fundraising, all the really exciting stuff, fund oh, management. Yeah. And, um, and so we were a good, we we're a good team. And that, I mean, that, that all happened at the end of 19. And so early, early 2020, we got started, uh, we agreed to start and then the world ended, COVID came and yeah. So I, yeah, I started the fund. Yeah, just while we were all stuck at home. So there it was an go. interesting time to get started. So did you come in on any of the SPVs or is it primarily you guys came into business together as partners on the fund, right? Correct. Yeah. We came in as yeah, par partners on the fund. We actually, we have a third partner too, uh, my partner Ingrid. So there's three of us um, and Ingrid uh, has an engineering background. So she's more on the like operating like tech side of, of the portfolio and I manage the fund. And then Dan is very hands-on on the turnaround piece. Great. Well, what critical function here? Who raises the money? 
Dan, Dan and I raise the money. So I, yeah. I like it or not also have, you know, I like, I like to fundraise. I like, you know, put everything together, tell the story, get people excited about it. Yeah. How was that raising in the midst of COVID? It was hard. It was really hard, which is why we, so we started, we didn't start with SPVs, but it was kind of, we, we had, you know, Dan had some inv- prior investors that effectively seeded us to make our first couple of investments. So the way we got the first fundraised is we warehouse some investments. And then one of them, one of the investments actually started to do really well because their business had gone down during COVID and we bought it in December. And so as soon as the world opened up in April, their business just rebounded. And on the back of the success of that company, you know, we were able to just rally enough LPs to get a fund closed. Excellent. And how many deals did you take down via uh, through Fund One? Uh, we took six, which was way too many for a tiny fund. So we would not do that again. We learned some valuable lessons in Fund One. So Sometimes. Fund Two is going to have four in a $20 million fund. Okay. Interesting. So, uh, I mean, t- talk to me about that. Like what's, why is that too many, uh, for a $10 million? Uh, it just wasn't, it just wasn't enough. It just wasn't enough capital. It wasn't enough capital. And then to properly support the companies, I think we were, we were just, you know, didn't, didn't realize how much, um, how much additional funding that they would need. I mean, we had planned to raise a $50 million fund. So it's not like we went out saying, you know, we're going to raise 10 million. So we were acquiring these companies thinking we'd have more capital under management. And yeah, it was just, it was, it was too, it was too many and then not enough capital to have a big enough team to really support everything properly. So, and two of the companies were consumer product and we've decided since then, we no longer invest in consumer products. So lesson learned, that was not a good vertical for us. So we are firmly live in our B2B technology uh, vertical. Gotcha. Okay. So you needed, basically, if I'm hearing this right, you needed more manpower to service these portfolio companies, right? And you, mm-hmm. needed, you needed more fee income to justify the hires to support those companies. Is that right? Or- yeah, and just more capital generally to also I would say the companies just needed more investment. If you imagine, you know, you're splitting less than $10 million across six companies, it's just not it's just not very much capital per company. Okay. Okay. So you you would have rather had more dollars to each portfolio company coming in at different terms, different phases of the project or the turnaround? Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely certainly having more capital to allocate per company would have would have been with that's what we've done in fund two is we've got more capital and what that's really allowed us to do is something that we were not anticipating that's worked out really well is having is doing these like little roll ups. So, you know, for example, like we have a company in fund two that, you know, was going and we just got an opportunity to buy the assets of a, you know, $1 million tech company, which normally would be too small for us, but we picked it up for almost nothing, but then could put more capital in for inorganic growth. So it's more just, you can be more strategic about how you want to grow the company. If we're sitting on more, just, we have more flexibility in terms of the, the dollars we can invest. 
Right. And you buy at a majority position. You said 75%, right? Usually it depends, but I would say, so the non-negotiables for us are must be, we must be in control. And, um, so, which usually entails a majority. And then we really don't like to keep prior preference like that is, so we want to like clean, we want to like clean preference stack and, you know, and then the rest of it is all negotiation, the debt. So usually we're bringing some debt along with us because like the company has been over leveraged. So we're doing a deal with the lender to sort of figure out a way to make them whole over time. Gotcha. And so do you, you have your original transaction, like Mm -hmm. I can't imagine that you would take any more equity later on. If you're providing additional follow-on investment, they would probably just be primarily through, you know, debt vehicles, as you were kind of saying, is is that kind of how you guys do business? Oh yeah. That's a good question actually. So no, typically what, typically when we structure a deal, we say um, the deal we're putting on the table. So I don't know, let's say it's whatever is we're going to own 75% of the company. We're going to pay a million dollars of cash up front and that 75% ownership, we take that regard of regardless of whether we invest one incremental dollar or we usually have a maximum. So we'll say we are committing a maximum of $4 million into this investment. Our capital goes in usually with a two to three X liquidation preference. So if the more dollars we put in, the more our liquidation preference goes, but that equity ownership is fixed. And we agree, we effectively agree with the founder and with the prior investors that there's a limit. You know, if we end up really having to put in a lot more money, then we agree we're all going to, we're going to renegotiate the deal. But we, we're, we're trying to sort of give some parameters that says, unless something material changes, this is, we're not going to change the cap table and gotcha. sort of take more equity. Love it. Look, I'm, I'm fascinated by your investment strategy. That's, <laughs> that's awesome. It's, it's very unique. Um, it's uh, yeah. pretty, it's pretty compelling though. My question is, you know, how would you know that you're not catching a falling knife type scenario, <laughs> right? As you, as you go yeah. in and underwrite these firms, like that's just would be my first thought is like, how do we know we're not on a sinking ship here? And like, what types of things do you guys look for in these portfolio companies that give you reasonable belief that, Hey, we can turn this thing around, patch the holes and, you know, we'll be selling to the sunset. Yeah. Well, look, that is the number one. I would say we get, I've talked to a lot of LPs and the, the big feedback we always get is it's right. Yeah. Two points. Yeah. Broken toys. Like someone else doesn't want this. Why would you take it? Um, you know, firstly, I think it's really important. It's really important to know that the, the way we are approaching the deal is for, first and foremost, it's like, what's our downside here? So we're almost taking a debt type position of if we buy this asset and it all goes wrong, how much is it? How much will it have cost us? Like, what is the risk reward calculation there? So if it only costs us $200,000 to get the asset, it's got, I don't know, three and a half million dollars of revenue. It has some big customers. We can see that it's had, it's got a, a market ready product and we can understand and we have a sense of you know how much capital it's going to take to 
keep it going to see whether it can actually grow, we're weighing that against the, it's really against the potential upside. So, um, so a lot of it comes down to, you know, is, is this a good deal? Is there a lot, is there a lot of value here that we think we're getting? And, you know, the companies don't fail. So we have one company in that we have one company in the portfolio that I would say we just, we had a thesis on, they had a thesis and we agreed with them on why they weren't growing and what they were going to do. And we bought it. And in the end that was, it was wrong. It was just wrong, right? Like we didn't grow that way. Turned out it needed a different strategy and we went through capital and it didn't work out the, the way that, the way that we hoped. And, and that is all, that is always going to happen. And we, as GPs, like we, we just, we try to be really creative. You know, we're like, of course this might not work. So this company is in the cybersecurity space. And, you know, now we're looking for rollups. We're like, okay, what could we put with this to help fix it? Like, you're just always taking some risks, seeing if it's working. If it's not working, we adjust, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not like a, it's not the VC model where we've, as soon as we've done the deal, we've handed them $5 million and we never see it again. We're managing, that's actually what we haven't talked about, but we have built a whole back office. So we manage all the finances, all the cash, everything that goes in and out. Like we really control what they're spending on so that we can make sure that, you know, no one's getting ahead of themselves and we're not overspending if things aren't working. But I mean, look, it's really, that is, that is the art in what we do is looking at these companies and figuring out wh- why the question you're asking is why didn't this work? What went wrong here? Um, and, and a lot of the time it's like nothing went wrong. They just didn't, they just needed more time and they just didn't have more time because they have a business model that relies on them raising more cash in within a certain window and they didn't hit the metrics. Yeah. So it is, it is what it is. Um, yeah, sorry. That I I know it's not a great answer. It's just no, like, that, it, it that was, was hard to. <laughs> it's, no, that that's sort of the magic of it. Well, now you just opened up a whole slew uh, set of questions <laughs> here, uh, telling me that you run the back back office. So let's let's break that down a little bit here. So you yeah. you take on uh, assume the finance and accounting departments is what you said. Do you do HR marketing? Like, where do you draw the line? Uh, talk to me about your fractionalized services that you're providing to these firms. Yeah. So it's part of the thesis. Part of the thesis is if you're going to run, most early stage companies are not managing their financials in a very rigorous way, right? They got given a lot of money. It's just not the priority. And we as turnaround, you know, sort of being turnaround people, we want to know where is money going does it need to go in this moment? Like we're, we're constantly just trying to manage the risk because for us, like deploying cash is, is risk. Um, so we have, a, and so we built this, you know, we built this back office team, which I would say has been a lot, actually like a ton of work, more than I think we anticipated, um, figuring out the right team. But it means that we have this, effectively real-time view of what's going on in the portfolio at any given time. So yeah, we handle finance, we handle HR, um, everything that is like insurance related, corporate administration, we do all the banking, we do 
and we actually did. So recently I just acquired a small digital agency to our management company acquired a small agency to provide marketing, call it baseline marketing services. Like I think in tech, there's a lot of, there can be really specialist marketing needs. So we wouldn't presume to provide everything, but the, uh, but like managing your website and you know, yeah. keeping your email marketing, like that should be able to be done and we should be able to do that more cost effectively. So I think those are, that's it. Just, just all the basics. Just, and just and then we say just everything. Just <laughs> and then we tell the CEOs that's part of value proposition, right? Like you just, you focus on sales and product and customers and have fun. And we're going to take care of everything else. Okay. So let me ask you this. So yeah. you, uh, you're providing these services on a fractionalized basis, obviously yeah. saving money at the portfolio company level, everything's yeah. fine and dandy, but what about when you go to exit? Like they're not, I mean, I assume like they're not going to have those fractionalized services as part of their cost structure anymore. Do you know what I'm saying? Like a potential buyer that comes and buys this company from you. Like they're going to say, well, look, you're, I mean, you're basically covering X amount of dollars worth for these guys. Like we're going to have to replace that. Um, I mean, does that complicate the, the disposition process for you guys as you sell off these portfolio companies or have you not even gotten there yet or where, where, where are you guys at? Well, we've, we've been trying to sell one. I don't know if you heard this, but the M&A markets are not doing great right now. So it's tough time to sell a company, but the, I guess the answer is yes, that is something we think about. And, you know, we do pull those costs below the line. Like we split them out. So we say like, this is, you know, we think about profitability, um, you know, sort of net of those of those fees. But so one of the companies we've been working on selling, most of the potential buyers are holding companies and they actually are thrilled because they're like, we don't have to, we have our own back office. So they're just going to replace our back office with their back office and keep the services centralized. You know, we're selling, so if we buy a company at, three to 5 million of revenue, we aim to be able to transact it at 10 to 12 million of, of revenue. So that's not, that's not likely to be a PE platform investment, but the likely buyer of that is either, you know, another PE backed firm doing a roll up. It's going to be a strategic. So the, the buyers are not likely to actually want those services. That's our feeling. And, and, and if, if it was really a problem, one, they could take, our staff, if they really needed to, we could work out, work out a deal um, or just provide transition services and keep managing their back office until they hire their own team. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, let me ask you this. What is your favorite part about running a fund? Oh, that's a good question. I really love structuring deals. I would just tell you, I, I don't, I don't know. I could like nerd out on, on structuring. I like hanging out with lawyers. Don't tell my lawyers though. Um, I don't want them, <laughs> I want them to know, uh, but I just, I love that part. I love the, seeing all these deals, figuring out what's possible, getting really creative, you know, sort of thinking through how are we going to maximize the return and, and really for, we think we make our money on the buy. So I, I love that part. And 
And then we're about to pull all our portfolio CEOs into a, we do an annual meeting with them. And I, I do as a former founder, like I love hanging out with other founders, tech founders talking about their business. You know, there's a, there's a lot of strategy here. Yeah. In the early stage company, we have to figure out like, are we targeting the right customers? How would we do this differently? Should we go channel? Should like, so all that strategy of where is this company going? I, I, I love doing, you know, fund administration part less. So I even like, I do like chatting to LPs. I do actually like the fundraising side. Yeah. Um, No, it's, it's a rush. It's, it's fun. Yeah. Uh, what is some of the, your least favorite uh, parts about running a fund? Ugh, reporting, just reporting. I find really, even though I like telling the LPs what's going on, I you know I always leave my LP letters to like the night before I have to get them out, um, and and then look dealing you know when we have when there are you know like there are just there are problems and. I think it's it's like you structure a deal, you think you got it all right, and then six months later you realize something's gone wrong that you didn't think of, and you kind of like structured yourself into a corner. I find that extremely frustrating. Sometimes, like just the realities of there's only so much you can do once you've agreed to a to a deal. I you know makes gotcha. me crazy. Yeah. Well, maybe a combination of both of these questions uh, <laughs> is, uh, you know, the name of this podcast is called Funds That Won, right? So we right. interview investment managers that are winning in the alternatives field. So, you know, what, you know, what makes a fund win at the end of the day? Uh, you know, what is a, what is a, a successful firm look like to you? Well, so obviously returns. I mean, I think that goes without saying, but I, I think, you know, what I've been thinking about a lot is, you know, how, how are we going to, how are we going to scale? You know, how are we going to grow? How, like what, if I want to have more assets under management, is that like more, you know, more GPs? Is that like bigger team below? Like just what does this look like in, in this the strategy is like very hands-on strategy. So I think figuring that out is um, like figuring that out is, is critical and it's, and it's really hard. And I feel like that is definitely a key to, um, to being successful in some, and certainly in something like in this, like kind of niche, like high uh, sort of full control strategy. Hmm. Um and then, yeah, and then just, you know, deal flow. For me, the one thing is like deal flow is everything and nurturing that deal flow, really making sure that I think about the people that are sending me deals and I, you know, do right by them and just like keeping that that funnel moving constantly is, yeah, w- without without that, there's no way, like it doesn't matter how good I am at at restructuring a company if I'm not able to see the good deals. Gotcha. So then that leads to outside returns, obviously, right? Yes, correct. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, I'd love to know how you're thinking about this. So, you know, what what is the future of stage? What is it, what does it look like? I mean, what are you, what are you, what are you weighing? What are the pros and cons? What are your goals? You know, what is what does this firm look like in 10 years? 
So. Oh goodness. I deserve that question. Don't I, I walked into it. So yeah. I, I did walk into that. Look, um, truthfully, so this is something that's been on my mind a, a lot. We've actually been considering raising equity into our management company to help scale for us. You know, we have, we have invested way too much money and time in building this back office, building this platform, actually like cultivating a lot of deal flow on a strategy that I, my hypothesis is if the secret is not like the secret is more GPs, not more like MBAs who work for me that I'm telling them what to do. Like, I, I actually think we get the best results if I can, you know, a really good strategic operator can be working directly with those CEOs without a big staff. And so I've been asking myself, like, can we effectively, you know, this distressed category of distressed venture investing is, is brand new and it's only going to grow. Like you look at the amount of venture dollars that, you know, sort of scale that came out in 2018, 19, 20, 21, right? All those companies, there's going to be so many companies that need an alternative path. So my question is like, can we become more of a platform? You know, can I think about, I don't know, maybe a fund of fund structure, or maybe we work with other managers and allow them to leverage our back office, which has a lot of startup cost and now is easy to, to go. So those are the kind of things I've been thinking about is what are the, what have we built in the last four years in addition to the just core strategy that, you know, would, uh, would allow us to get our playbook out there more widely because we think it works. And, and we think this category, like, I just, I think there's so much that can be done in it. And there's so few funds that are in it, right? They're like, we all know each other's a very small ecosystem. I feel like with your strategy, you might be constrained on on the the size of the fund from like a velocity of money perspective, right? Like, 100%. not like I feel like in this strategy, it'd be tough to go deploy, you know, five hundred million dollars, right? Like it's it's yes, going to be pretty tough to do at one time, right? I definitely agree, <laughs> which is why I'm like, how do I could I though take our platform, our playbook, our track record, and deploy, you know, support, I don't know, five GPs and give each of them $50 million for their, and then help manage it and like provide all the call it infrastructure support for this high touch strategy. Well, so let's talk about this. So is, what yeah. is the constraint here then? Is it the fact that like, if I, if you had the right people in place, you're saying that mm. this industry could take on half a billion dollars in deployments over a year or two. For sure. For sure. Okay. You could definitely deploy. You could de like forget like forget the in the US market, I think you could deploy that. Um, but then you open up other markets and all of a sudden there's a lot. So you could definitely deploy a you could definitely deploy. But how do you look at enough deals? How you know there's just there's only so many there's only so many deals one team, even like one team can look at. And I would say this, like one thing about the strategy is you're going to, you're going to invest in an early stage company and you're going to roll up your sleeves and you're going to get in there. You got to enjoy it. And sometimes I look at companies and I'm like, this is cool. It's like, it hits all my criteria. And I'm like, this is boring. Or like, it's just so uninteresting to me 
that I'm not the right person to do it. And so I think you need to deploy more. You just need to have more people with their own perspective, their own work experience, their own you know market knowledge to be able to see the opportunity. Like there, here is something that definitely has value, but who's the right person? Who's the right GP to have a vision to you know grow it? Yeah, interesting. So, because I mean, like from I mean, the average process to grow a firm is that you would then if you raise more money, you got to write bigger checks. Right. But you're saying, uh, do, do you have any constraints in that ballpark? Right. Like is there, are there deals in the same strategy where, I mean, if your average check size is a few million bucks, could you write $10 million checks into this strategy and have it still perform? Do you think, or is it better to keep your same check size and just, you know, expand outward and hit more of those size companies? Yeah, that is a good question. And I don't, I, I will say this, I think certainly right now, I think there's a lot of opportunity. You can acquire like the, the difference in value. I would say this, like the difference in maybe let's call it like value expectation from a founder that's got three, $4 million of revenue and, you know, is kind of growing and having difficulty, right? Like what you pay for that company versus what you pay for even a company doing six or like a SaaS company doing six or 7 million of revenue. It's, it's like miles apart. Like it's, it's amazing to me how there really is this subscale market opportunity where you can get in for a lot for like a tiny amount of cash and really just the commitment to invest more money and really the hope, right? You're saying to someone like, stick with me, I'll make this work for you. However, there is a, like these six, $7 million companies, they also don't have great, like they also have trouble. They also need deals, but there I would say you probably have to buy that asset. So you probably have to show up to buy that asset with five, at least probably five million cash minimum. And you're going to be, you're not going to be able to take quite as much equity. So the question is, is that company like, is, is your upside on that? And maybe downside, is your downside a lot lower? And then is your upside a lot higher to make up for that difference in, in cash? And the truth is, I don't, I, I don't know yet. My hypothesis is yes. And I think the way I would deploy more into the strategies, I just start to, I try to buy better assets. Hmm. Um, so that, yeah, that's how I'm thinking about it, but it's hard to say. The thing is that there's something, you know, something kind of magical. If you can deploy $4 million, sell companies for $20 million and consistently make three to four times your money. Like, like we're all like, we're all doing great, um, on that. Uh, but I have to get more AUM. So this is my challenge. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, let's see. So how, what does your firm look like? You, you said you have three partners, you have a, this slew of back office. I would imagine quite a few employees back there, but I mean, or walk me through not, what it looks like. Yeah. Not a ton. Cause we're, um, you know, we try to run pretty lean cause we're turnaround people, but so yeah, there's three partners. I have an associate, um, an associate. We have like a, you know, call it 
PA, we have a controller, three accounting staff under the controller. We have an HR person, we have a GC. I'm trying to think about, I probably missed someone and hopefully they, oh, and marketing, good, solid marketing uh, person. So, but yeah, it's a pretty, okay. pretty yeah. lean team. There we go. And, and a lot of these, I mean, they're all, a lot of them are involved in your portfolio companies, right? They all are. Yeah. They all get billed out. Yeah. They manage everything. We've built it. We've built a ton of systems. We've tried to invest in, you know, good technology to automate reporting and keep our people costs down. Also, it turns out that I, you know, don't, I don't actually want to run. I think I discovered running a startup. I'm much better suited to the fund model where you don't have like 50 employees that'll want to talk to you all the time. So yeah. I like, we deliberately kept it lean. What's this, what's the single best technology that you've implemented uh, that has been great at your firm? Oh, good question. Uh, probably, um, and now I'm going to forget the name of it. We have like a, we have an FP&A software. I want to say data rails. Yes, we have data rails that we use. That and what does really, data rails really do like. for you? It just automates. So it, it effectively gives us a single dashboard where it's pulling the QuickBooks info from every single portfolio company. We load in all our budgets. You can auto run budget to actuals, run our reporting. It's very handy. That and... And I do like affinity a lot, actually, which I, you know, not big on spending on expensive CRMs, but um, I find I'm very bad at data entry and I really appreciate the way that it just integrates with email and pulls everything in that has made, made my life a lot easier. Yeah. Well, great. What, uh, what's something, you know, now that you wish you knew when you were just getting your fund going back in 2019? Oh, good question. What I wish I knew. I knew, I knew that it was going to take a long time, right? I know that this is a business model that, you know, it's sort of a slow burn, right? You get started and, um, but I don't, I knew that, but I didn't know it. I wasn't really prepared for, you know, a solid kind of two, three years of just tons of sweat equity and like really like having to like figure that out. And I don't, I don't think my husband really internalized that either. So, uh, but you know, and funny thing too, is I find being an emerging fund manager, you are a founder, right? We are founders, we are startup people, but we don't really get the credit because all the other founders, like you have money, you're investors, like you're not real, you know, sort of died in the wool founders, but I think we are. And, oh, you know, and so yeah, it's, yeah. it's been really great to meet other fund managers and talk to them about it. Yeah, no, absolutely. You kind of get disregarded. If you raise money, you, they, people are like, oh yeah. I mean, but what people forget is a fund is a business, right? It's an investment management right. business. It's an investing business. And there's just as many problems and, and hurdles <laughs> there as well, you know? Yeah, yeah great. Um, well, look, this has been awesome. Uh, awesome conversation. As we look to wrap up, a uh, you know, a couple rapid fire questions here. Uh, okay. Do any, any habits that you have that you feel like have contributed to your success? So I got a remarkable a couple of years ago and it sort of changed my life. And I'm very diligent about taking my notes and just organizing them at the end of the day. I look at so many deals 
have so many conversations that forcing myself into that has been very productive. Excellent. Uh, and those, those are the pads that you can just take notes on, right? Like, is that what that is? Yeah. And then I've, you know, I've got all the sinks and it also, yeah. So it's been it just much more diligent note-taking has yeah, been a critical. Love it. Uh, what are some of your business slash investing pet peeves? What, what, what things drive you crazy in this business? I think it is that lack of understanding about the business model. Like when you talk to people, they really don't understand that this investment management business is like fixed revenue, which is kind of crazy fixed revenue. And then everyone, all these like costs and just like all the costs of the lawyers, the fund administrators, the compliance, like it's sort of crazy to me how much cost there is in this business and how many people like you have to pay just to have the privilege of like being in business. So I, that makes me crazy. Wish you could cut some of those costs down, huh? You know, you know, it's just, it's like, there's a lot of, a lot of fixed cost and a lot of, and really only fixed revenue. It's just, it's a terrible business model until your companies start to exit. I mean that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, you, you talked about uh, maybe something, uh, a different expectation you had coming into the fund as you did, you know, now, uh, but yeah. what maybe to ask the same question a different way, you know, is like, what advice would you give to somebody who's thinking about getting into this business? Network. I, I mean, I think it comes back to deal flow. I, I, I understand everyone said deal flow is important, but I just think certainly in our business, deal flow is everything and that it comes from, it comes from your network. And it, frankly, it really comes from, just doing what you say you're going to do. And I know that I'm sure everyone says that, but it, it is so important. Like you talk to someone about a deal, you know, you tell them when you're going to get back to them, you get back to them in that time frame. Like you don't forget things like you really are. And if you agree to a deal, like, you know, once I actually say to someone, I'm going to get this deal done, it, it would take a giant, like, giant thing for me to walk away from it because especially in a distress category if you get a reputation for kind of being wishy-washy and not really being able to close no one will send you deals so I, I just think that deal flow the reputation management the like being super diligent is um i've had to get better at that and like i would have given myself the advice to get better sooner if i were starting over great advice very sound advice Krista, thank you so much for taking the time and hopping on here and sharing about stage. What a what a great conversation. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Okay, well, that was great. That was really fun. I enjoyed that. Um, did uh, Is there anything that you wish I would have asked you more about or something you wish you could talk about about stage that I didn't give you the opportunity to? No, I don't think so. I think we really touched on all of it, so... This, yeah, this is great. I'm going to, I, I've not listened to enough of these podcasts. I'm going to have to go and check, check them out and hear the stories of other fund managers. Oh yeah. I mean, that's what, so, I mean, I guess I, little background on us. Um, so we, we started an education company about five years ago. Um, mm. well, we were starting a debt fund back then and huh. my partner's dad is the co-founder of bridge investment group, which is, uh, like a $50 billion real estate fund now. Anyhow, yeah. we 
we would call him like every weekend and ask him questions about, Hey, how do we set this fund up? You know? Yeah. And, uh, so as we were, we started documenting it all. And uh, we also had another partner who had done kind of like the e-learning thing. We're like, Hey, this would be a good, you know, huh. product. So we put together a course and then we honestly, now we're somewhat of an incubator. Uh, we've partnered with like service providers and uh, everything in this space we've incubated almost 200 funds in the past two years. Uh, so really? all in alternatives, like just various niche real estate, private equity, venture, hedge fund, and, and any, some random investment strategy that probably is a sub subset of private equity or VC or anything you could think of. But uh, yeah. yeah, so we've, and then now I, so you said something interesting in the podcast, which we should, which probably justifies a follow-up conversation if you're open to it. Cause we run a, uh, we run a, I run now run a GP stakes fund that we just picked up off the ground, uh, uh, last year where we partner and invest with emerging managers. So anyone managing less than a billion dollars, uh, you know, we can come in and, uh, we'll partner in a variety of ways, either help covering part of the GP commitment or growth capital yeah. to the firm or buy out bad partners or, you know, something like that. So, huh. um, yeah, I, yeah. Cause we're raised. Yeah. We're, yeah, we're raising, yeah, we're raising equity and it's really to scale, scale up the back office. And I'm, I really am curious. I really want to think about this fund of funds. Like, I just think this distressed venture category is I meet all these managers that are having trouble raising because people don't understand the strategy. LPs are having trouble putting money to work because the strategies are really small and they don't want to do the diligence. And it's such a high touch strategy that if you could say to someone like, here's all your bet, like, here's everything you need to run it. All you have to do is like, take it. I like, I'm so curious about a fund, like what that would look like to just have a fund where we effectively but, yeah, I mean, fun, managers yeah, fund of funds are, it's a great business model, right? Like it, uh, it really is. I mean, it's, and it's, it's more of a passive, you know, you're, you're busy during yeah. the deployment period, but then, uh, you know, you, you can sit back and, I mean, sure, there there should be some strategic value add typically throughout the life of the firm, but uh, recent regulation is somewhat complicated funds of funds a little bit. Um, oh, really? Well, I don't know if you are. Do uh, I mean at least you're not regulated by the SEC? Are you domiciled in there? No. Yeah, not yet. We are in Delaware, but you, we're not we're not fully regulated yet. You're talking about the private funds rules that I thought those that were still under discussion. So there was this rule that went into effect January 1, where you have to, uh, basically, it's 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 forcing more transparency on side letters. So, oh, yeah. um, you know, you basically, if you have preferred economics that you issue to an LP, then um, you have to disclose that to all of your other investors. So, I mean, at the institutional level and typically with fund of funds, their big value add is like, hey, I'll anchor you, right? I'll write you a fat check, and I, but I want X, Y, Z, you know, W yeah. terms. And then, uh, you know, and, you know, managers are great with it and it's it's been great. But now, yeah. uh, at the, I think it it takes, you're, you're grandfathered in before Oh, it might be 2025. I can't remember, but it, it's already signed. It's into effect right. where you now have to disclose any preferred economics, which kind of sucks. 
Uh, so hmm. it doesn't, I mean, it's not terrible. Like it just changes the way fund of funds, strategic value add comes from in a lot of ways. You know what I'm saying? I see because they are often the way you're doing it is signing side letters and getting some of the, like you're kind of moving the economics around. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, that's like, yeah. I mean, because it's, it's the dual fee thing, right? So that's the biggest resistance against a fund of fund is like, okay, so yeah. you're going to charge me a two and 20 and then these firms are going to charge into and 20. Right. And so yeah. it's like, no, well, look, we're only going to charge you a one in 10 and we're going to negotiate a one in 10. Um, like that's the better way to do it. But now if you get a one in 10 at that fund manager level, now basically they have to disclose that to everyone, all their other LPs. And it's like, crap, you know, like, yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess like I'm, I'm so I'm curious to like talk to other fund of funds, but for this first one, I was half thinking we should just almost seed the managers entirely. Like be like this, you do your first fund at 20 million, we'll give you the entire 20 million. Like there are no other LPs and we're going to like code, like we're basically going to like mentor you through our strategy, through our playbook. We're going to take your back office. Like I'm kind of thinking of it as a way. Oh, you would like. Yeah. So you'd entirely. I'm, I'm kind of, that's kind of what I'm thinking. Cause these are to your point, these are like small funds and I could manage five managers easily at this point. Right. I've learned like, and then, and then we'd be able to just keep our direct funds going, call it 50 million at 50 million every 18 to 24 months, just like deploy that as we go. Yeah. I got to run here. Yeah. Uh, we yeah. should, we should have a follow-up conversation. Cause I think I've got some thoughts for you. Awesome. Well, hey, this this is great. I, I really appreciate you guys having me. All right. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. All information shared are solely the thoughts and opinions of the author or guests. Content is for educational purposes only. Do not take any information from the show as financial, investment, tax, or legal advice. Seek counsel from a licensed professional before taking action in any business pursuit. We're not selling or soliciting security in any way, shape, or form. The host may maintain positions in securities discussed on this podcast. Guests on the show may be current or historical clients of Fund Launch, Fund Launch Partners, or Black Card Capital Partners.